Hello, hello. This is Rebecca Radio And Maggie Bacella. And this is Does It Get the Pass? A podcast where we arbitrarily decide whether rom-coms get the pass. And on our episode this week, we will be talking about the Marvel Cinematic Universe film Ant-Man and the Wasp, directed by Peyton Reed and starring, among many people, Evangeline Lilly and Paul Rudd in the title roles. I was going to say, how dare you put Evangeline Lilly before Paul Rudd, but that might just be my personal bias. If you are not familiar with this film, it came out in 2018, and according to Letterboxd, as, uh, as the summary goes, just when his time under house arrest after Captain America Civil War is about to end, Scott Lang once again, once again puts his freedom at risk to help Hope Van Dyne and Dr. Hank Pym dive into the quantum realm and try to accomplish against time and any chance of success a very dangerous rescue mission. You know, it's pretty much a superhero movie. It's kind of like a sneak rom-com, I think is what we're going to call them. Um, It's like disguising itself as a superhero movie, but I think that the main beats of it are very much rom-com-esque. Oh, for sure. Um, And if you are are not familiar with Peyton Reed outside of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, his other big project, among other things, is 2003's Down With Love, which is a rom-com starring Ewan McGregor and Renee Zellweger, which we will cover on the pod at some point, but if you haven't watched it, go watch it. It's excellent, but I do think no matter what Peyton Reed says to, you know, my outlet or anybody else, the man the man is a rom-com director down to his roots, and I think it, it very much shows in, in this film. Yeah, and I think it's also really funny that most of the main cast members and big-name cast members also did like a sizable number of rom-coms um like Paul Rudd did a rom-com with Michelle Pfeiffer I might add which plays, one because um, I was thinking Anna Clueless but um no 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 no. it's this oh my god I literally had it on my list it's about like falling oh I could never be your woman or I could never be your man huh interesting yeah obviously so we yeah. we all know we all know Paul Rudd from Clueless which is to me top 10 rom-com of all time but yeah, I, I'm not super familiar with with a ton of the other people in this film beyond uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, who is now doing double duty in both DC and Marvel, and Michael Douglas, who I really only know for Fatal Attraction, which is essentially the opposite of the kind of film that we cover on this <laughs> podcast. So he's also done rom-coms, though. Has he? Again, I am so yeah. out of the loop with the things that aren't immediately... Because I, for those of you who don't know... I work in entertainment journalism, so anything that's not immediately coming out kind of gets stuffed to the back of my brain unless you're uh unless you happen to be one of my many, many uh you know, many one of the many men I'm enamored with and I happen to be rewatching your television shows for the eightieth time. My freaking serialized is just like three Pedro Pascal shows right now. It's unreasonable. Yeah, well, I think that the rom com, and this is like probably one of my mom's favorites, it's Romancing the Stone and oh, Jewel of the Nile. How did I forget he was Fuck! He's the man. He's the oh man of those. Oh my god! How did um, I forget that he was in that? Jesus Christ! Yeah. Oh, so my mom's I, gonna be ashamed of me. Oh uh, yeah. Well, I think that it's pretty safe to say that all of these actors kind of have their rom-com chops in some way, shape, or form, and For I sure. think that it does help that, like, you know, create that very much like rom-com vibe. Like we talked last week about how there are some actors who just did a lot of rom-coms and among these ap- actors are absolutely people who did. Yeah. So, yeah. And as, as far as this film goes, it, it lives in a weird middle space. I don't remember what phase of the MCU this film came in, but it, it's living in a very weird middle space because we were between Avengers films or we were, this came out 
either right before or right after Infinity War because you have that that post credit scene of everyone except for Scott getting dusted. But so it came out but either like in that weird period and also Ant Man up to now with the release of Quantumania and the introduction of Jonathan Majors as Kang the Conqueror has existed as this sort of fun kind of side quest for Marvel. It's not really it's not to say that it was unimportant to the MCU, but it was always incredibly low stakes compared Absolutely. to the rest of the MCU. And I think rom-coms at their core tend to be pretty low stakes unless you're doing something like Romancing the Stone. <laughs> it exists in that place in the MCU where it can lean into a lot of those tropes a lot more heavily than, you know, say, I was going to say the name of another MCU film that came out around that time, but I am so burnt out on Marvel that I forget every single one from that phase. <laughs> I So this was phase four. Um, I did some light research before. Yeah, it came out immediately after, like two months after um, Avengers Infinity War. So in 2018. And then like the one that came out right after it was Captain Marvel in early 2019. I remember so, that because I saw Captain yeah. Marvel in theaters. Yeah. And so like, like you said, like you kind of j- made the comment about it not being like important or anything but like Peyton Reed actually gave like this interview a while ago like when Ant-Man and the Wasp was coming out where he's like no I want to be the unimportant thing I want to be the space where the franchise and the universe can just like have fun and do really low stakes stories obviously that took a really different turn in Quantumania because it's not like the same low stakes fun kind of story that Ant-Man and Ant-Man and the Wasp had yeah, but I was going to say, because we, we, we've, co- we've done a bunch of stories at work about him saying that he now wants Scott Lang to not just be the quote-unquote comedic relief, that mm-hmm. he does want him to have more weight in the MCU. And I wonder if that's just because, and I, I have not seen Quantumania as of the recording of this podcast. I don't know if that means that he wants Scott to be more involved with the Avengers going forward or you know bar him dying or whatever as most you know phase whatever Mm -hmm. heroes have at this point but he's definitely said you know I he wants Scott to have more more import going forward and I wish I had seen Quantumania before we recorded this because I mean one I'm in love with Jonathan Majors and we will probably talk a lot about how I want him in rom-coms uh but future pod episode totally I did I did think when I was watching this movie that it did feel a little like kind of 90 minutes, two hours of setup for Quantumania and for mm-hmm. uh, Endgame. Because I know you love this movie. On a second watch, I did not enjoy this movie as much as I did the first time. Oh I don't gosh. know what the circumstances were that led me to that. Because I remember enjoying it in theaters. But I was not as enamored with this movie as you are. <laughs> I I don't know. I watched this. Okay. fun. This is a fun Rebecca Lore fact. Um, Over the pandemic like in 2020 I watched the first Ant-Man movie 40 times um I watched it once a week <laughs> I couldn't remember if that basically was this one or that yeah one. so basically from the time I came home um for what we thought was two weeks to the end of that year I watched it probably once a week either with my mom or my brothers or by myself most of those times were by myself and I'm really glad I wasn't like really like using Letterboxd a lot of the time because I think that Letterboxd would have called and reached out about needing psychiatric help because no one should watch a movie 40 times in one year. Um, I was and saying, around that it would time, be like those like Spotify ads that they put up in New York a couple of years ago that was like X person listened to this song a hundred or so times like you good. It would be like that. 
Yeah, it was literally like that. And so I didn't watch Ant-Man and the Wasp nearly as many times as I watched Ant-Man, but it was really, really easy to just throw on when my mom and I couldn't decide what to watch because she really likes Paul Rudd. She really likes Michael Douglas. I love this. Like, I love Ant-Man as like um, now a trilogy, I guess, which is really weird to say. Yeah. Um, It's weird. It's weird. Um, (laughs) I was starting to really like enjoy rom-coms again when, when, the pandemic happened and so this movie was just coming up a lot and I know that you I saw your very dismal two-star rating I'm of it I'm so and sorry maybe, no it's okay everyone is allowed to have their own um incorrect I mean per, uh, their own valid opinion um <laughs> <laughs> affectionately of course but like yeah I I just think it's really sweet and really cute um I oh my god I'm just trying to think like I just think it's silly and Maybe that my four star rating of it is just because I watched it so much and it does have like a special place in my heart. Like I'm totally willing to believe that is the case for why I gave it such a high rating. It does just make me feel good. And I think it's just because I love watching Scott and Hope just like fall back in love. Like when I said that I like a second chance romance, it's entirely because of this movie. I think it's, like, I don't know, because I love Paul Rudd. Like, the, none mm-hmm. of what I have to say in terms of how little I enjoyed this movie, at least on this watch, has to do with Paul Rudd. Because, as I've said, I adore Clueless. I think Clueless is one of my favorite movies. And I love him and everything he's in. I do think that the introduction of him to the MCU benefited Marvel more than it hurt them. Because I know a lot of people have complained that he's too silly, that he's too yada yada, whatever. I love a funny man if that, you know, if that means that I have a type, whatever. But so I, I like, I don't know. I think this film, like I said, it it exists in a weird place where it's very low stakes. But at that point, I think my problem with it is because it's low stakes and I'm going and expecting a Marvel movie, which is usually a lot higher stakes. That's where it that's where I hit the the problems, but it, and, and I think, I don't know. And I'm also not super familiar with any of the characters in this beyond Scott and Hope and Hank Pym, who my only note about Hank Pym, this entire movie was just me writing his name. And then it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. The lyrics from Taylor. So it's anti-hero because the only thing I know about Hank Pym in the comics is that he's a piece of shit and he kind of, starts to lean that direction in this movie a little bit so no that's absolutely true and I uh, I don't know why but like I feel like the um characterization of Hank is a crossover from the comics like just from what I've seen like he is kind of an asshole like blatantly an asshole in the comics and is like not a very likable character from what I've gathered and what I've read and seen um Reed Richards yeah him and Reed Richards both um (laughs) but sorry to all the Reed Richards stands that I have that are friends out there but it's it's true um and I don't know like I think that like you said it's just a weird low stakes movie mm-hmm. maybe that's why I could enjoy it so much because I literally like didn't have to use my brain while watching it and it's like Ant-Man and the Wasp I think is for the most part pretty divorced from the rest of what's happening in the Marvel Cinematic Universe like we get some reference to Civil War but the movie I think could honestly function on its own without Civil War at all. Yeah, I think the only context you need from Civil War is why Scott's on house arrest. And I literally, I was rewatching this movie with a friend when I rewatched it. Yeah. And I literally had to say, why the fuck is Scott on house arrest again? And they had to remind me that Civil War happened because I, listen, I don't like Steve Rogers. 
I have never really enjoyed the Captain America movie, so I just blocked uh, Civil War out of my brain, and I was like, oh, yeah, he was there, wasn't he? Because the only thing I remember about Civil War really is Black Panther and Scarlet Witch, so that shows you where my priorities lie. Yeah, uh, the only reason I watch Civil War is because of, you know, it is a gay rom-com. I mean, I'm sorry, what? Um, (laughs) It's... I mean, you have a Bucky Barnes tattoo. I do have so. a Bucky Barnes tattoo. No, not even a Bucky Barnes tattoo. I specifically have a Winter Soldier tattoo. You do. I do. So it's like, I'm unfortunately like legally bound to have at least some sort of respect for Civil War, which is why it doesn't have a half star rating on Letterboxd from me. But literally, like I could only give a shit about Civil War because of Bucky. Um, yeah. But I, said I, the, I said to my mother that the only, like, I don't like Civil War because... My preferred murderous military boy in the MCU is indeed Frank Castle. So I couldn't care less about Bucky the way that most people care about Bucky. So if this was a Marvel podcast, we would go on talking about maybe all of like the the Civil War comics and all of the funny shit that happened with um, Punisher and Moon Knight in Civil War. Oh, my God. But we're going to get ahead of ourselves. But. I think that maybe this is a space to like intro my first question that I have for you. Oh boy, go ahead. <laughs> okay, so um, you kind of touched on this when you were talking, but what does it mean for a superhero movie to quote unquote be a rom-com? Are you talking like, because I, I know that Marvel has especially very recently dipped its toe into genre like making a genre film. Uh, if you are at all familiar with the MCU, you will be familiar with Werewolf by Night, which came out last fall, starring Gael Garcia Bernal. And that very much dipped into the, you know, old Hollywood hammer horror, horror film of it all. And that did it very successfully. Across the board, I think Marvel has not been great about doing that up to the point that Werewolf by Night was introduced. Oh, there were some elements of it in... Moon Knight, which was, in my opinion, one of the best Marvel shows, just TV shows to date. Uh, but in terms of making a Marvel movie a rom-com, I think there has to be significant emphasis on the relationship between two characters. Because I personally, I do think that there are rom-com elements to at least the first Iron Man film. Oh, um, partially because... Tony, yeah. Yeah. Partially because Robert Downey Jr. has been in a number of rom-coms if you've seen anything he did with Marissa Tomei in the 90s uh <laughs> shout out only you but i i think it has to have that significant emphasis on the on whatever romantic characters are involved outside of the overarching storyline because there have been marvel comics that are straight up rom-coms you know there there's oh, been a lot yeah. of the comics are a lot better at that at, at focusing on you know interpersonal relationships rather than the big quote-unquote big bad that has to fuel the film but Ant-Man and the Wasp I think does it really well because so much of the film and so much of why Scott gets roped back into this after being on house arrest is because of hope so his entire motivation for this and the entire reason he says yes you know despite the fact that she does kind of kidnap him from his house in the first act (laughs) is because of her because he cares about her and so I think there's very few rom-coms, or very few Marvel movies, pardon me, that effectively do that. You could argue that, like, pieces of WandaVision are a rom-com, but I would argue that that's, that falls under a different genre umbrella entirely yeah. because of what it's doing with the, with the medium. 
Yeah, that like you said about WandaVision, it's definitely more of like a sitcom family romance, that kind of thing. Whereas I think that Ant-Man and the Wasp is very, it's as close as to a rom-com as the MCU is ever going to get, basically. I, I also, like, maybe this is just me being selfish, but I really expected that with like a release date so close to Valentine's Day that Quantumania was going to be also kind of like a rom-com as well. It wasn't, but that's, we can talk about that later. Um, but yeah, I think that like all of your comments about like genre and needing that relationship to propel the story forward leads me into 1A of this question. This is the double pronged one I mentioned earlier, but like I think that in some ways the rom-com plot can parallel like a superhero kind of hero's journey plot as well because there's obviously that inciting incident that makes them become a hero or makes the couple like meet whatever a meet cute. I don't know what you'd call it in a superhero <laughs> movie. Um, the meet fate. Am I using a term here right now? Um, Possibly. But like, do you do you think that in this movie, I'm in the Wasp, the rom-com plot does parallel the superhero journey that they're going on as well. I possibly, um, I think that the, because I, I feel like you could consider Ant-Man, the first Ant-Man as well, a, a rom-com, uh, not quite as straight out, but there are the elements of mm-hmm. it. I think in the first Ant-Man, the hero's journey and the lover's journey follow each other a little more closely because the thing with the entire arc of this film is that we're we're living with pre-established characters but also everything going on with ghost uh played by hannah john Kamen and bill foster played by Lawrence fishburne i feel like that the direction that that goes and the and it, adding on to that the journey down into the quantum realm to rescue janet van dyne played by michelle pfeiffer, michelle pfeiffer. there i i think adding those two things in and having that double pronged like having two B plots essentially uh, instead of just, you know, the hero has to save the day again. It's the hero has to rescue someone. And he's basically rescuing two people. They're rescuing Janet from the quantum realm and they're rescuing Ava, I believe is her Ava, name. Yeah. Ava star. Uh, from yeah. Herself? Question from, mark? from essentially herself. Yeah. And I think like there's, it, there's a lot of self-reflection, I think in this movie from that perspective, because I think Ava serves to force people to sort of reflect, like force uh, hope and, Hank and and I almost said Paul Scott to focus on what they love and focus on what they have because she has lost so much. So I I don't necessarily think so. I think partially also because so much of this movie is so heavily dependent on big action set pieces, uh, oh, which is not yeah. there. There's no real parallel to that in a rom com. Uh, the way that, you know, because it's like, the, the what I'm thinking of particularly is the car chase scene in San Francisco. So if you're not familiar with the film, there's an entire car chase where they're trying to get it. They're trying to get back Hank Pym's lab, which he has shrunk using his Ant-Man technology that has been stolen by, cannot remember the name of the character. He's played by Walton Goggins. Walter Goggins. Who's just yeah. Oh, Sonny. Having, Sonny. He's Sonny, having the yeah. time of his life. Uh, but there is a car chase that's involved. Uh, Michael Pena's Luis gets roped in to this kind of shrunken car chase where Hank Pym has this whole setup. He has a little Hot Wheels rally case where he can pick cars out of and make them big again. And so Luis has, is driving one of the cars that he, you know, shrinks and embiggens at will. And it's this whole, you know, they're, they're driving down the hills of San Francisco, which are this, they're super, super steep. And that takes up a large chunk of the movie. Cause I did note in my yeah. notes that it's like a 15 minute sequence. Like it is, that ends with Scott in the Harbor 
as giant oh man, my gosh um, passing out yeah. in the water and then hope has to go get him that's a very very romantic moment like that is my favorite the bottom of the bay scene. but yeah that is my favorite scene from the whole movie um i love when she <laughs> i i've logged this on letterboxd several times five times now and one of my very first oh my third review of it was and when hope and scott had their kiss on the wharf and then in bold all caps. I felt that. And <laughs> I usually don't love like, like a heterosexual presenting couple so much, but I love them so much. Like the other reviews are really just me calling them my emotional support heterosexuals. Um, and they <laughs> are. Um, but that scene at the wharf is so, I don't know, like romance coded. And I think that it's one of, so like you said, I think that the superhero's journey is going on different places than the lover's journey but in that one scene on the wharf when she has to go down and rescue him and like fix his regulator and they're on the wharf again and he's like kind of dead or knocked out over and he like chokes up again and she kisses him oh it's so good I think that's the one moment where the superhero plot line and the the lover's story just kind of converge in this really like I think like both emotionally and psychologically fulfilling way because it's like it's the resolution of like this huge chase scene and this huge fight scene and it's also them kind of officially coming back together again because they've been apart for a long time this is a second chance romance um so I don't know I I love that scene a lot um yeah it, it also weirdly fits your like idea of that they don't get to kiss until the end Yes, yes, that is exactly it. And and to to note your your thing about second chance romance, I do think you could apply second chance romance to Hank and Janet too, because you you get that whole the the because in the film Hank Pym is the one to go down in his weird little magic Quantum school bus mobile is what I was calling it. Uh, that's a, that's a better term for it actually. His little magic school bus down into the quantum realm because if you are not familiar with Marvel lore, Janet Van Dyne shrunk herself down between the atoms of of I believe it was a bomb to diffuse it in the 80s yeah um and she ended up stuck in the quantum realm from the time that hope was a child and so the, he, hope and Hank have been living with this trauma and so he goes down to the quantum realm in his little magic school bus to find her and rescue her and you get this probably the moment that I was paying attention the most the, the whole movie like their moment when Hank finds her doesn't realize it's her at first, but she takes off this mask. It's very, you know, it's a whole dramatic thing. You realize Michelle Pfeiffer hasn't aged in 30 fucking years. Um, and it's, they have this embrace that I think is probably next to the, the end of the, the wharf scene. One of the most romantic movies in the the movie. Yeah, they are. Yeah. yeah. The the scenes are happening pretty much stacked on top of each other while, um, Hank is traveling in his quantum magic school bus um, to go rescue Janet. That's when Hope is diving under the water to go rescue Scott from, you know, drowning. And I think that it's it's really sweet. I'm like, you guys can't see this because this is obviously not on video, but I'm like beaming thinking about it. <laughs> she, she is, she is. Um, no, I think that Hank and Janet are like, you know how like every rom-com has like another couple that you just know is going to get together at the end the anyway. The B-plot couple, yeah. The B-plot couple. They are the B-plot couple. And I think that they're really, really sweet. So, um, yeah. yeah. It's complicated it... in Quantumania though. Like it's like oh, the Jesus what happens Christ. after the happy kissy ending. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, again, I have not seen Quantumania as of this recording, but I do think that it is interesting to put 
Hank and Janet and Scott and Hope as almost p- parallels in that way that that's, those scenes are cut together. And, and like, I, it's fascinating to me, I think also because you have so much star power in Michael Douglas and Michelle Pfeiffer. And then mm-hmm. you have Paul Rudd, Evangeline Lilly, who are obviously just as, as famous, especially I would say Paul Rudd more so than Evangeline Lilly, but it's, it's interesting. And I'm interested to see where, they're both of their really both of those sets of relationships go in Quantumania because I think there's I, I know a bit about the film because obviously I work in entertainment journalism and nothing is spoiler free when you work <laughs> as, a, as an editor. But, you know, it's like I, I know almost nothing about how those relationships resolve themselves and whether we are going to get to see more of that in the future. And I hope I don't want to have to you know, fight anybody behind a Denny's or steal kneecaps as, you know, as the saying goes, or as my saying goes when I get annoyed at things. So, but I did want to bring something else up that yes, go ahead. I was thinking about this in the context of a rom-com. I cannot believe it never registered to me that rom-com sidekick queen Judy Greer is in this movie. Yes! Oh my gosh. She's like in all of them, like 30, she is. 30 and 27 dresses. She's always the best friend. And she kind of is the best friend character in these movies. Ish? She is. She's the ex-wife, yeah. technically. Also, her yeah. character's name is Maggie, which is hysterical to me. But, <laughs> it, yeah, she. I wrote in my notes, Judy Greer is always doing the most because she's also doing the most here because I know her best from 13 Going on 30 where she is the bitchy best friend. But here, she's Scott's ex-wife who's now dating a cop played by Bobby Cannavale who's doing also the most also in the this most. movie. And she, when... Agent Wu, who you might recognize from WandaVision, comes in to search Scott's house after he has a mishap where his ankle monitor ends up outside of his fence. She comes and she's just yelling at these cops. It is hysterical. Maggie Lang yeah, says she, ACAB, so. She does. She, her, one of her funniest lines, because I was literally just watching it this afternoon in like preparation of this. Um, she says, what does the FBI even stand for? Forever bothering individuals. And the, the line <laughs> delivery of it alone. The line she's read on such that, a yeah. goddess. I think that she's hilarious. I, she's not in Quantumania. Sorry, everyone. Um, truly a disservice to the movie because she would have eaten. She would have devoured. she and Michael Pena, who plays Luis, are not in this film, are not in Quantumania, is an atrocity. What is an Ant-Man film without one of Luis's monologues? What is an Ant-Man film without Maggie Lang just yelling at people? I'm so sad. Like, Jonathan Majors, I love you. You cannot make up for that. (laughs) It was, yeah, there were a lot of things that I, if this was a Marvel podcast, I'd just scream about, like, all of the things that I wish were in it. I still had really good and fun time watching it. Like, that's, like, not even a given. But, like, there are things that I'm, like, because there are two movies before it that like had all of these really recognizable tropes and beats and they do kind of parallel each other in the kinds of character things that are going on. I, it just felt like, Oh, like, okay. It's not like necessarily, you know, everything that an Ant-Man movie or what we've been shown to be an Ant-Man movie is, but different story for another day. But yeah, Judy, Judy Greer being in this movie definitely, I think at least puts it, in the area of like, oh yeah, this is definitely a rom-com because that's like what she is pretty much known for like in her career yeah. at this point. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I, I think additionally her and then Abby Ryder Fortson as, as young Cassie, obviously we have recast Cassie now it's now Catherine Newton, but baby Cassie, there's so many rom-coms you come in and I'm, I'm thinking particularly of Enchanted where one of the love interests already has children from a prior marriage or, or prior relationship, whatever. And 
Abby Ryder Fortson is playing that character and she is like, I'm like, she's going to be in, I believe an adaptation of, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret with Rachel McAdams, but her, she's got to be like six or seven in this movie, right? Like she was a young kid when she shot this movie and she is carrying like every single scene she's in because she much like her mom is very like, why are you bothering my dad? What are you doing? And she's hilarious. And so I think like that's another rom-com trope that I think this film fulfills is the kid that's very protective of a parent. And oh my god, I'm obsessed with Abby Ryder Fortson. I've been obsessed with her since the first Ant-Man movie. I'm so excited adorable. to see what she does yes. as an adult. Yeah, I actually so I only took three notes for this movie because I basically know it like the back of my hand at this point. But <laughs> I, I wrote down three tropes. One of them is the overbearing parent. I think that Hank kind of falls under that because oh, yeah. he does have some moments in the car where it's just him and uh, Scott where he's like, are you going to stop ogling my daughter and actually go get this shit done? And like yep. things like that. And he like yells at the both of them right before that big car chase too that we talked about earlier saying like, um, are we going to get going? Are you guys going to keep looking at each other for like for for hours and hours and hours? Um, and it's really funny. So like, we kind of mentioned like the overbearing parent last week in our episode, like that comes from the Mrs. Bennett strain of parenthood. And he's very much like that. The second one I wrote was the perceptive child and also like the protective <laughs> child, because like, I'm specifically thinking of like love actually. Um, oh, what's his name? The little, little kid. S- Sam is the character's name. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking of how Sam was, yeah, was telling like his stepdad about like what he should be doing for love and romance and stuff like that. And he just seemed to, it's very much like an out of the mouths of babes kind of trope. And I think that um, there is this one scene and it's probably like another really, really cute scene of like Abby Ryder Fortson and Paul Rudd um, where she's telling him or she's asking him, how long have you been Ant-Man again? And he tells her not for very long. And she's all like, you need someone out there who can protect you. And she says, and it should be hope. And I think it's really, really sweet and really, really cute. Um, I don't know. I I love that scene a lot. And so like this perceptive child trope is like so embodied by little tiny Abby. And I think she's she's no more than 10. But she, she cares. Like, she can hold her yet. own with like people like Paul Rudd and Judy Greer, who are very famous like comic actors. And she's such a funny little kid. I think that she really does bring a lot of like life and heart to, you know, this movie and the first Ant-Man movie as well. She does. Absolutely. And the, the specifically any of the sequences involving the, the FBI when they're sort of, because yeah. a lot of the film is, is, is Wu trying to crack down on Scott. My friend, when I was watching it with her shout out Sav, she said that Cassie's kind of like Boba Fett in Attack of the Clones where she's just kind of like tiny and like just tiny and like staring daggers at these people. And it's, and that's something that like kid child actors, it's difficult to really hit a good mark with them because they're kids. They don't really have the, the, like you said, the perceptiveness that they need necessarily on a film set. She, like you said, can stand up next to Paul Rudd, next to Judy Greer, next to everybody in this movie and stare daggers. And it is the funniest thing you've seen all week. She is such a gem. And I'm kind of like, I'm a little sad. I was a little sad watching whether it was, was it Endgame when Scott comes out of the quantum realm, realizes yeah. he's been gone for five years and she's older. I was like, damn it. Cause they, cause Abby and Paul were such a good team. Yeah. And I feel like, oh yeah, no, cause they just had such great comedic timing. And I think that Catherine Newton and Paul Rudd um, spend a lot of time together in Quantumania as um, grown up Cassie and Scott 
And they have almost the same level of camaraderie, I think. Because Catherine Newton, she's been around and she's done a lot of stuff, but she's still like freaky as an actress. Um, But she does carry a lot of like Abby Ryder's snart into the role. Oh, God. Thankfully, she does. But I think that nothing will ever top Abby Ryder Fortson watch like as Cassie watching the TV when Scott's like really huge and big. And, um, Uh, what is his name Paxton and Maggie are watching like with horror and they're like oh my god Scott's gonna get in so much trouble but it pans down to Cassie and she's just like got the funniest little smirk on her face like she's like yeah that's my dad he's so cool um I just think that yeah no it's he's got a good kid and I think that takes me to the third note I wrote like it's a blended family and I think that a lot of second chance romances do feature a blended family and I think it's really beautiful that this one does portray it in such a really beautiful healthy way yeah because i think marvel is questionable with their representation of family i think there's a lot Mm -hmm. like you get a lot of like it's it's difficult for them to do that because a lot of a lot of heroes have the tragic uh you know they've either their parents are dead and they're an orphan or it's the case of like frank castle where his entire family just got you know shot like they're they're dead yeah you know it's it's this whole thing of like superheroes rely so much on tragic backstory and or tragic whatever to function that it's very rare that you see a family unit beyond just you know a couple like beyond just scott and hope beyond pepper and tony beyond whoever else i'm forgetting literally every other marvel marvel character that exists but you know (laughs) it's it's rare that you see those units and i think it's why uh to make myself look incredibly old why when Avengers came out, we had such a fixation on stuff like, you know, the Avengers Tower fan fiction because that family unit is something, it's a tropey thing that people love and you don't see it a lot in Marvel. But with Ant-Man and the Wasp, you do get to see family because family is important to Hope and Hank as they go looking for Janet. uh, Family is important to Scott as he tries to protect Cassie. Like it's, it's family is a, it's a, it's an aspect in this film that is not, as present in other Marvel films, even in things like Endgame, when you get Morgan Stark, it's still, she kind of almost feels like she's just an accessory. Whereas like Cassie, Maggie, Paxton, all of these characters are integral to who Scott is. Yeah. And I think that having that like shared value of family as like the most important thing really does make, um, Scott and Hope I think one of the healthiest relation like romantic relationships in the whole MCU Um, yeah maybe that's up for debate if you don't agree but I think that they are to to date still one of the healthiest relationships in the MCU because they have these shared values and because they're so honest and like motivated by these shared values too and I think that I don't know I they make me feel warm and fuzzy inside which is why I love this movie so much and I think that the entire thing is just them kind of like recommitting to each other and like really like cementing like no family is important and the whole reason why they kind of like break up in the first place is because you know Scott goes off to do civil war and paint on the walls in Germany as to quote um Jimmy Woo he leaves out hope he doesn't ask hope to come with him and she thought that he was that she was part of his family and that he was part of hers. And so it's like a violation of that too. But obviously Ant-Man and the Wasp is about them working together as a team and like falling together, like falling in love together 
all over again um, as they do that mission of to save um, Janet. And I don't, I don't know. It's really, it's really sweet. I don't know. I think I have a special place in my heart for this movie. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm inclined to agree with you in that they're Marvel's probably healthiest couple because to bring it back to the point of this podcast, Ant-Man and the Wasp does get the pass because, and I think it's, it's easier for them to get the pass because if you are not familiar with Ant-Man's origins, you know, Scott meets Hope and Hank when he meets them they already know everything about him. They have kind of strategically brought him into their lives. They know about his past. They know everything about him. And over the course of two, both films, both Ant-Man and Ant-Man and the Wasp, Scott learns things about Hope. She's not intentionally keeping anything from him. So there's no miscommunication about who either of them are. And there's no infidelity because frankly, they ain't got time for that in a Marvel movie. (laughs) Chad, they're also just, kind of obsessed with each other like especially in the first one hope is like so like obsessed with like putting him down to a certain degree that she doesn't even think about anybody else and like obviously in Ant-Man the Wasp she's still so upset and hurt by the fact that he did this thing without her and when she thought that they were a team partners and partners like in both the romantic and superhero sense the 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 line is very blurry for the two of them like where being a hero, like a hero team begins and where being partners ends um, romantically, so to speak. Yeah, it's it's and, and again, it's a Marvel film. So I think the lines are always going to be blurry because until I, until or unless we start moving forward with phase four, phase five, whatever phase we're in, because God knows I can't keep any of them straight uh, unless we start to move forward and really embrace genre. Like, until we get a Marvel spinoff that's just a straight rom-com, which, like, believe me, Marvel Studios, I have pitches written for all of them. Let me get my grubby hands all over (laughs) Frank Castle and Karen Page. Uh, Like, unless we start moving towards strict genre things, I think those lines are always going to be blurred. But in terms of Marvel, which up until that point really was doing straight superhero things you know very straightforward you know we had Iron Man we had Captain America we had Thor they were all very straight heroes journeys we didn't really start to branch off until this film you know we start to branch off after that with things like Black Panther and obviously I mentioned Werewolf by Night and things like that but I do think that Ant-Man and the Wasp was a bit of a pioneer in that sense that it, it it was daring to do things that didn't service the sort of Avengers of it all if you know what I mean. The Avengers of it all is definitely going to be the tagline for this episode because it you just you just decided it right now because that was really funny. Um, <laughs> no, it's this this movie is not in service to the Avengers of it all. It's a very much like a family unit romantic unit movie. Like all of their problems are kind of tied to each other. Like I, I don't know. I think that it's it's so strange to say. Yeah, Ant Man and the Wasp is a pioneering movie. For the MCU, but it is like it was the first place where I think that they felt comfortable enough to be like, okay, we can explore something a little bit more genre heavy and maybe not get yelled at for it. Because obviously, like we said, people perceive and even Peyton Reed himself like perceives this like kind of subset of the Marvel Universe as unimportant when in fact, like it's doing a lot more work because it doesn't have a lot of the same expectations put on it. But yeah. I don't know. Is there anything else like you wanted to add? I know I had questions that I wrote down. Did you have any? No, I don't think I have anything else. You know, I, I like I said, you know, I was very, very lukewarm 
on this film, but talking about it, I've, I've warmed up to it. So if you have anything else that you want to say about them, because I know they're your emotional support heterosexuals. So <laughs> um, I think that like just at the end of the day, I'd really love to see more rom-com stuff or just leaning more into rom-com and not being afraid of it um, in general in the MCU, because I do like when the MCU does genre, even if they do like fumble the bag on it. I, I appreciate them trying at the very least. I think that there's definitely space for like a Jen Walters, Matt Murdock rom-com. In the future, I was just going to I would it. love to see um, like those, those are my, ne- that's my next candidate for who I think could do like an MCU rom-com. And I think that they do a great job with it. Also, um, we mentioned earlier that Peyton Reed is like a rom-com king, has done a lot of them in his storied career. We didn't even talk about Bring It On, which is one of my favorite rom-coms ever. Because it's like punk guy, cheerleader girl. And I, I think that Peyton Reed just does that couple so fabulously. But he mentioned last week when doing press for Mania that... Uh, he doesn't think the rom-com is dead and that he really thinks that there is like a market for them out there and that young people don't have their marquee rom-com of the generation yet. I think it's very, I think it's very um, telling about where the the genre itself is going and that like this kind of like big rom-com director from the early aughts is saying like, no, they're still important. We should still be making them. Big studios can make them and make them well. And I don't know, it was really, really heartwarming to hear that because I feel like, you know, sometimes when a director goes past their genre or like what they're known for doing, they can kind of like lose an appreciation for what they used to do. And so it was really, really exciting to see um, Peyton Reed say that he still loves rom-coms and still wants to see them be made and has support for them. Maybe he'll do another one in the future. Maybe if if we get Ant-Man and the Wasp for whatever we'll actually get like another rom-com for Scott and Hope, which I of course would like love to see. I, yeah, please either that or put him on a Jen Walters and Matt Murdock rom-com. You said that. And I like, cause I was thinking when you were talking that I think the next closest thing we've gotten to a rom-com is She-Hulk, which if you've not seen She-Hulk, there are a handful of episodes where Jen Walters, a.k.a. She-Hulk, is based out in L.A., and Matt Murdock comes out to represent a client that she is going up against in court, and they have a little, like, one-episode romance thing, and it is the sweetest, cutest thing I've ever, like, that I've seen to date in a Marvel thing. And here's the thing. I have said, I have gone on record saying I would push Matt Murdock down a flight of stairs. She-Hulk made me like Matt Murdock, which yes! like, what Oh my fuck? God. I remember listening to that conversation in real time when we were, you know, watching She-Hulk and stuff every single week. It made me laugh so hard. And she brings him to the family potluck at the uh, end of the show in the finale, which super sweet. I think that they're an excellent candidate. Like, I would love to see Peyton, Dere- Peyton Reed direct an episode of She-Hulk season two or three or whatever, um, for sure. where we get them in like, you know, more banter. Cause that's like what he's known for. And he's also said that he likes um, comedy where it's all played very visually. And I think it's really funny, obviously to have like Jen be hulked out and maybe Matt not knowing when or if she's hulked out. Like there's things that you can play with there that fit his style of comedy um, and his style of direction. So I think that they're a perfect candidate for him. I for sure I think that the like because I think 
Jen and Matt remind me very much of Ewan McGregor and, and Renee Zellweger in Down With Love, which is my personal favorite Peyton Reed rom-com. So I think I think he could do a lot with that. So hopefully, fingers crossed, the MCU will continue to lean into genre things, not only with the more scary side of things, but also the more romantic side of things. And we will see much more from hopefully not only Peyton Reed, but Scott and Hope in the future as well. Yeah, I think um, if we kind of just want to like end this soon-ish, I, we... We never like kind of explicitly said this. It does get the pass. It does. It does yeah. It just gets the pass 100%. And like Maggie said, they don't have time to cheat on each other anyways. Like, does any Marvel character have time to cheat at all? Do they even have time for romantic relationships? Which is really why I don't. think Ant-Man and the Wasp stands out. Because it is pretty much about Scott and Hope getting back together as partners, both romantic and su- superhero again. Yeah, I don't know. If I don't really have anything else to say, I'll just keep gushing about them for like 10 more years if we don't end this, like at least somewhere, um, if you want to take us out. Yeah, to cut Rebecca off before we get really, really deep into the Marvel of it all, because we are both Marvel stands, we will not shut up. If you want to follow Does It Get the Pass on socials to see what we're up to, we are on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at GetThePassPod, and on Letterboxd at ThePassPod. If you want to follow me on socials, I am on Instagram at MaggieRachel underscore, spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L. I am on Twitter at Maggie underscore Rachel, and I'm on TikTok at Maggie Rachel. Um, if you want to follow me on Twitter, um, I am at with a hero. And if you want to follow me on Instagram, I am at King of the Chess People. And I think that's all for this week, at least. But next week, we will be talking about music and lyrics starring uh, Hugh Grant and Drew Barrymore, both rom-com kings and queens in their own right. Um, and I don't know, I'm really excited to watch music and lyrics all over again because it's like my favorite rom-com music and lyrics is seminal for the both of us so i hope you will catch us next week